Our Father, we are so thankful again for the continuing survival of revelation to us and that your words will remain forever. And we ask that your Holy Spirit illuminate our hearts again tonight to the truths of your word to glorify the Lord Jesus Christ in whose name we pray. Amen. We are on the event following the flood, the covenant of Noah. And we have mentioned that this covenant which can be passed over so quickly in reading the Bible is a really crucial um, part of the Bible as far as why it's there, why God reveals Himself in covenant form. And on page 87 of your notes, uh, I had two questions. And I want to begin tonight by looking at those two questions, just as a tool to kind of review some concepts. We said last time, quoting Dr. Albright, that the Bible and the Bible alone is the only place you can find where God makes a contract publicly with a nation and a people. That God, the God of the Bible is known for his contractual agreement. And we said there are a number of implications why this happened and why it is a very important observation about the God of the Bible over against all other competitors. And on page 87, the question one says, go back and review the pagan texts we studied in chapters two and four and try to devise what a covenant would look like between pagan gods and men. So this is sort of a negative approach. But let's think about that for a moment tonight. What if, if, we, were try, if we would try to imagine uh, Marduk or Tiamat or one of the gods and goddesses of those narratives that we read, keeping in mind that the narratives we read are the, written by the same generation that wrote most of the Old Testament. So if we want to say, gee... Um, the Bible is an ancient book and therefore full of ancient ideas, a healthy antidote to that is, yeah, we'll go ahead and read some more ancient literature and compare it with the Bible. You want to read ancient literature. And when you do that, then you see the differences. It's not until you do that that you see the differences. So let's think about those differences a moment. Let's look on the pagan side and then on the Bible side. We want to train ourselves to be sensitive to these differences. Now, if we were to try to generate a covenant on the pagan side of the house, let's think about what that covenant would look like. Let's imagine, for example, following some of the texts that we had, uh, let's imagine on this side we have Marduk. Okay, so he's one of the, the gods of the pagan pantheon. Now, what kind of a contract could Marduk propose to us? Let's say he promises there will not be a flood. Okay, so we'll make Marduk and the god of the scriptures make the same promise. No flood. And God says, no flood. All right, suppose Marduk were able to do that. All right, now let's, let's look at what backs up those words. What is the problem that the pagan has with this equation? If you think through the background of all those, those texts that we read, what was going on in, in the text? Well, we saw that the gods and the goddesses were competing with each other. There was no supreme god or goddess permanent supremacy. There was always a, a, a football game depending on what the next quarter is going to bring as far as a score. So even if we had a situation where Marduk promised a flood, what is missing about Marduk's character that renders a covenant untrustworthy? Well, number one is 
let's go back to the attributes of God. We're right back to thinking about those attributes again. God is omnipotent. Is Marduk omnipotent? Well, he might appear so as long as he's top dog. But when he gets knocked off by another god or goddess, he's obviously not omnipotent. So, Marduk doesn't have that character. So, omnipotence is missing. Omnipresence, uh, not being an infinite god, but being a god trapped along with us, he's a sort of a semi-deity, we would have to say that he's not really omnipresent. Is Marduk immutable? Well, we would have to say not really because Marduk can change. Marduk can be removed. Marduk is not a permanent fixture. And the very narratives that we, we uh, saw show that. So he doesn't have immutability. God has immutability. Marduk may, was not eternal. And how do we know Marduk wasn't eternal? Remember the text? The pagan text. What was eternal in the pagan view? It was the watery chaos, the universe, the world of matter. That was always kind of there. And it was part of the anatomy of the gods. There's no case where here's God and he speaks the universe into existence. You know, like Michelangelo's famous painting where uh, God is reaching forward and you see that part in his, where God's finger reaches out and... Uh, Francis Schaeffer used to point out so much uh, that Michelangelo knew his art and when he painted the finger of the father and the finger of Adam, he didn't connect them. He left a space between their fingers because God and the universe are not the same. But in paganism, the universe, remember we had water and the water was connected to the gods and the goddesses so that these spiritual beings somehow are also physical, and that's what we mean, there's a continuity of being between them. The universe comes out of their anatomy, or the universe is their anatomy. With God, that isn't so. And so what is eternal over here on the pagan side is, is a mystery. It's some sort of transforming part of the universe. God alone is eternal. And we come over here, sovereignty... That's interesting because God has, is sovereign, so he has the right to say, I will. But on the pagan side, sovereignty is a missing element hiding behind something. Because if you have a pantheon of many gods, the question always is, which god and which goddess of the moments will prevails? And to explain that, which would obviously lead to a pile of marbles, so to explain that, what the pagan writers always used to do was hide sovereignty underneath a thing called fate. And in that early uh, thing in chapter 2, that, that manuscript of Enuma Elish, fate appeared as a tablet. Remember, the, it says the gods took the tablet of destinies. So they always have this tension because they can't really get sovereignty inside their god they have to have something behind their God that moves. And that's fate. And fate is blind because it's an impersonal thing. It's a tablet. It's always pictured as a tablet. It's never pictured as a person. And I pointed out, if you read, see the movie 2001, Arthur C. Clarke's influence in literary science fiction, that's why he pictured in that movie, Stanley Kubrick that made the film, the, the, the universe is driven by this tablet. It's not a person. It's a thing. And you'll always see that. It's not accidental. You watch. It always appears this way. Only in the Bible do you have a personal sovereign God. And we said that God is holy, and so he's a source of moral standards. And over here, the pagan gods are both good and evil. Remember that? They've always been evil. Evil's always with them. So the quality going back between the pagan deities and the God of the Scriptures is enormous. Love, and if you look at the gods and goddesses, their behavior is just like us. And so, it's, it's really selfishness. And, of course, we, we point out that, that God is omniscient, He knows, and the pagan gods really cannot claim omniscience either, can they? Because they don't know what fate holds. So, the gods and the goddesses are trapped 
because they're not omniscient. They, finally, analysis, are as much a victim of fate as any man or woman is a victim of fate. Everybody's a victim of this thing called fate, but nobody knows where it's going. And so that's why you have interest in horoscopes and all the rest of it in paganism. So here we deal with a God who can promise no flood, and he has the power of character to back up the claim. On the other side, with paganism, you can have a God that makes the claim, but he doesn't have the character to back up the claim. There's no basis, no foundation for that. So we have conclude that the God of the Scripture, who makes covenants now, and we, we want to go point, point something else out as we get running start here, and that is that why do we have a covenant in the first place? Contracts are made whenever there's a need to measure behavior. So we have a contract, and the contract deals with verifiable, and that's an important point, verifiable behavior. Now, why do we want verifiable behavior? Why does God condescend to make a contract or a covenant with verifiable behavior? Well, the answer is, as the scriptures tell us, because he keeps covenant. What does that show about God? It shows his faithfulness. So, why, why God does this is it demonstrates his character. His character is a character of faithfulness. So, the contract form that you see in the scriptures, whether it's the contract with Abraham, the contract with Moses, the contract with Israel, the contract with David, the contract with Jesus Christ and the church and the new covenant, whatever the contract is, it always has at its basis this element. This is the big idea behind contracts. And it's the big idea behind scripture. Because as cha as, and on the second question, if biblical covenants establish a framework of verifiability, that is, the behavior of the parties involved is to be checked, what implications does this principle have about every historical text in the Bible? Learn to think through the structure of your faith. You don't have to have all... It's nice to have proof texts, but it's far more powerful to be able to reason your way through this makes sense in the light of this, which makes sense in the light of that. There's a systematic truthfulness to the scriptures. And what implications, what implications when we have a contract that needs verification? The implication we said last week is this is what leads and is the basis for the claim for in errant scripture. And why is that? Because the scripture is the historical testimony to the trustworthiness of God. It's not the testament to the trustworthiness of us. We're not trustworthy. It's the trustworthiness of God. He is the one who is the trustable one, and it's he that is the function of the stories. Next year, if we get into the Old Testament a little bit more in the narratives, so many of us went to Sunday school and we heard the story of David and we heard the story of Elijah and, and all the stories are great but often what we have always missed is that those stories whether they be of Elisha or David ultimately are not of Elisha and David they're ultimately a story of the administration of the Mosaic Covenant and all those stories are selected by the Holy Spirit for recording to demonstrate and anybody that knows the covenantal basis knows exactly why those stories are there, and the order in which they come. That's the hidden structure behind the Bible. So, having said all that, we, we've, we've stressed that at the end of the flood, at the beginning of the new era, if you want to call this, this is Noah's new world order. This was a new world order at a moment in time in history. Before this time... Before this time, we have an era of mystery. It is not well known what went on in the antediluvian world. It's almost like a curtain has been drawn, drawn in the past. We have lots of questions about what went on here, but this side of the flood is the civilization that you and I know. That's the civilization that we are part of. And that's the history that we are familiar with. And Noah is the fountainhead behind all this. 
But tonight, we want to look at the implications of this covenant structure for the environment in which history is to take place. Because we're going to find that there are certain things that God has put into the environment to demonstrate that He is a covenant-keeping God, that His behavior is verifiable by observation, and that this structure to history, this environmental structure to history, is falsified or is attempted to be falsified by the pagan mind. Remember, we've dealt with chapter after chapter after chapter. Every time God reveals something, the pagan mind comes along because the carnal mind is enmity against God. It will not submit to God. The enmity of the carnal mind always generates a counterfeit. And this is no exception. We're going to study the implications of the covenant for this environment all during this period of history that we now live in. And that environmental background that's structured by the covenant has been falsified in our time. That the pagan mind has reinterpreted the structure of the covenant into something else altogether different. And all of us have been trained to think primarily in our public education in a very pagan way about this structure. So much so that we find it incredible to believe that certain things in the Bible have actually happened. We have difficulty believing certain things in the Bible happened because we have sucked in the presuppositions that are floating in the air all around us. We've bought into those. So we want to look then at some passages of Scripture that show the effect that this, this environment of control has. So once again, let's turn to Genesis and just to refresh our minds, look at that promise again in the covenant. Genesis chapter 9. And if you look at the terms of the contract where he says that um, in 13 and 14 where he signs his name with a rainbow, I sat my bow in the cloud, it shall be for a sign of the covenant, shall come to pass and bring a cloud over the earth, that the bow shall be seen. And verse 15, I will remember my covenant, which is between me and you and every living creature of all flesh, and never again shall the water become a flood to destroy all flesh. I will look upon it, verse 16, to remember the everlasting covenant. Look at that term, everlasting covenant between God and every living creature of all flesh that is upon the earth. Now, immediately we know that this environmental contract is for the total environment. This includes believers and unbelievers. It's no distinction. This is not a salvation and redemptive thing. This is a universal environmental thing holding for all men, all women, all races, all cultures in all centuries. This is a universal. The, the, the Noahic family had just come through a catastrophe of unimaginable dimensions. They had seen nature torn to shreds. And they would have naturally feared that this would have happened again. Can you imagine? I mean, we sit here centuries and thousands of years later, and it's easy for us who live in a relatively tranquil physical environment to kind of just kiss this off. But if you could imagine, if you in your mind's eye can imagine the experience these people had for one year in a rocking boat with the entire genetic pool aboard that boat, Think of the responsibility. I mean, you may not have, if you were in Noah's family, you might not have thought of that because you might not have been a biochemist and have some of the, more of the understanding we do. But riding in that boat is the entire genetic pool of the human race. There's no other genes left. They're all gone. They've been destroyed. Every one of us tonight carries the biochemical heritage of Noah, his wife, his three sons, and their three wives. We get genes from no one else except those people. If you have a dog, cat, cattle, the genes of those animals were on this ark. 
So this is the genetic pool that has been saved. And they have watched, literally, the physical environment around them disintegrate before them. They have witnessed the power of God like no person ever had up to that point and probably no person ever will until the return of Jesus Christ. It was an awesome thing for them to have lived through. And then they walk out in this muddy, reshaped, radically different earth with a radically different climate, almost like they've come to a different planet. And you can't help but wonder whether they're saying, are we safe? Are we really safe? Viewed against the catastrophe that has happened, how can we be sure that we are at home in the universe, that the uni we are at peace? And the story, of course, Noah's name means peace. And it's a story of the establishment of stability and peace. The metaphor of control of the flood occurs again and again in Scripture. I showed you one of those passages. I'm going to take you back there again, and then we're going to show some personal application. So if you turn to the book of Psalms, we want to show how under the Holy Spirit the poets of the Scripture remembered and used this metaphor, and we still do in our language. It's a metaphor that has been preserved in almost every, I guess, every language on earth, except maybe perhaps people have always lived in the desert and never been around a lot of water. But we, we almost intuitively when things are not going well in our life, when there's a lot of chaos and a lot of confusion, what do we refer to that as the storms of life? Give me peace in the middle of this mess, the storms of life. We're using a natural metaphor, whether we realize it or not. It's something that almost intuitively comes to us. Well, in the Bible, in, in Psalm 29, this voice of praise... At the end, in verse 29, chapter, in, in chapter 29, verse 10 and 11, that's the origin of the metaphor of calmness and control in the middle of chaos. And the Lord sat as king at the, at the Mabul. This is the chaos of the flood. Yes, the Lord sits at king, as king forever. And the application, verse 11, the Lord will give strength to his people. The Lord will bless his people with peace peace in the middle of that. In other words, because God is a covenant-keeping God, he has control of the environment. Now, if you go to Psalm 32, here's an example of how the psalmist uses that. It, it, you can see it again and again, the psalm. I'm just showing you some. But it, it's repeated again, and, and, and world literature does the same thing. In Psalm 32, verse 6, Therefore, let everyone who is godly pray to thee in a time when thou mayest be found. Surely in a flood of great waters they shall not reach him. Now, in that case, they're talking about the threatening arm of the flood. But the idea basically is, verse 7, Thou art my hiding place, thou dost preserve me from trouble, thou dost surround me with songs of deliverance. The idea there is that God has control. And we just have to keep the prayer lines open. In Psalm 124, there's another reference to this flood metaphor. And again, it's just, just common, ordinary use of the word, but you have to look upon this metaphor now in the light of what we just studied in the form of Noah. In, in Psalm 124, verses 4 and 5, Then the waters would have engulfed us. The stream would have swept over our soul. Then the raging waters would have swept over our soul, but blessed be the Lord who has not given us to be torn by their teeth. In the case, this is people. There are real physical people here. But the metaphor is a flood of waters. A metaphor isn't any good unless the, the physical source of the metaphor is valid. I mean, a symbol is no good if the thing behind the symbol is, is wrong. You don't build powerful metaphors on fiction. So... The Bible has this flood thing, and we saw our last week how the Lord Jesus Christ calmed the Sea of Galilee as an example of this. But I want to show you how the Bible goes further with this metaphor and begins to apply the chaos of the flood, the chaos of the waters, to humanity as a whole. And in apocalyptic and prophetic scriptures, the sea becomes a metaphor of the human race at large. Let's turn to Daniel chapter 7.
The Bible we interpret literally, but saying that doesn't mean we don't see symbols in the Scripture. Okay, in chapter 7 of the book of Daniel, verse 2, Daniel's describing the motion picture, so to speak, that God gives him. And he's going to record this vision, and he reports it to us. Daniel said, I was looking in my vision by night, and behold, the four winds of heaven were stirring up the great sea. Now, what is the great sea? Well, let's read further. And four beasts were coming up from the sea, different from one another. The first was like a lion, had wings of an eagle, and so forth and so on. And you can finish the chapter and you'll see that those beasts are basically kings and civilizations. The beasts have two roles. They, they stand for the head of the dynasty, but they also stand for the kingdom of the, of the dynasty. So there's that dual thing. But where, do the, where does the king come from? He comes from the sea. Now let's just think about a simple principle. Water is dangerous, a body of water is dangerous, particularly a freshwater body is dangerous, because wind can stir it up. And that's why shallow water lakes are far more dangerous than the deep ocean. The reason being that when you get wind, wind conveys a force on the water, and if your water is very thin, like Okeechobee in Florida, where it's not very deep, it was once a tragedy that occurred in Florida where there's a hurricane passed over and all the momentum of the wind was transferred to the water so the water just kept on moving in one massive surge and drowned hundreds and hundreds of people. Well, shallow water does that. Deep water doesn't because it can recycle. Shallow water can't recycle because it's not deep enough to recycle. So water takes on the shape of the force acting on it. And what happens in, in, the, in the apocalyptic scripture is that the sea being water, being formless, is like people. And the wind doesn't require too much imagination to know what the wind means. The wind stands for spiritual forces that act on people as the wind acts on the sea. And it's those spiritual forces that act on human, the human race all the time, the background principalities and powers that work their will into history that causes the rise and the decline of kings and kingdoms. And Daniel uses this as a metaphor. Why do I go into all that to deal with the implications of the covenant for nature? Because all of those metaphors, whether they be in prophetic scripture or whether they be in Psalms, applying it to personal living, all have their root back in God's covenantal control on the forces of nature. So, as you turn in the notes on page 87... One of the great principles I've enumerated there is that nature is bounded by the Word of God. And I make the point, uh, and by the way, last week we saw Isaiah 54, 9, and since we're over in that part of the Bible with Daniel, let's go back toward, the, toward Genesis and stop at Isaiah on the way back to the left. Isaiah 54, because this gives you the model for how the flood idea is carried forward in the Bible as an illustration. Isaiah 54, 9. God says through Isaiah, This is like the days of Noah, when I swore the waters of Noah should not flood the earth again. So I have sworn I will not be angry with you, nor will I rebuke you. Later covenants are built on the faithfulness of God to this covenant. That's why the Noahic covenant is so critical. It is the ground covenant for all the following covenants. And God himself refers to that logic. I kept covenant. You haven't seen a global flood. I have kept control as I said I would. Now when I say I'm going to do this and this and this in history, trust me. Haven't I proven myself trustworthy? So the Noahic covenant has specified in very definite ways that nature is bounded by the Word of God. Now, in the last paragraph on page 87, I point out this great truth. While it's great, the environment is controlled, the Word of God stands over it, paganism can't let that stand. And so the fleshly mind always has to reinterpret and rearrange. 
And so in the paragraph on the bottom of page 87, if you'll note where I say, paganism, both ancient and modern, inevitably transforms the creator-creature distinction, God's personal sovereign rule, into some sort of continuity of being and impersonal chance. And on the basis of neither, is there room for establishing true universals? What the, and if you turn the page to page 88, a few paragraphs down, I extend that idea. Second paragraph from the bottom on page 88. It is just at this point that we escalate the battle with paganism. Paganism is the product of the carnal mind and enmity with God can't stand awareness of his sovereign, omnipotent word. It thus, and this is the key sentence, it thus substitutes for the present experience of geophysical stability the idol of what is now called natural law. Paganism here uses the metaphor of human legislation to name its apostate attempt at getting universal constants. Now, we all use the word natural law. And, of course, it's tempting, and textbooks are written like this, Mother Nature, capital N. Now, let's look at this critically for a moment. Everybody accepts this. Why? Now, excuse me. Well, let me ask an embarrassing question. Why do we believe in natural law? What is it we mean by this? Let's look at that term again. Natural law. My glasses are out of focus. Um, natural law. Well, who makes law? From a pagan point of view, it's man who makes law. Where did this, thing, where did this expression come from? This expression is purely metaphorical. Think about it for a minute. There's not any scientific proof that this isn't. Who made the law? Well, it's just there. Okay, if it's just there, why call it law? We call, what do we call an object called law? When, when you use the term L-A-W, what are you referring to? You're referring to a rule that some person makes. Some person makes that. So, we're used to uh, some sovereign power, some authorized power, makes a rule, we call that rule a law. But again, we ask the question, in the light of a pagan frame of reference, why do we use the word law? Where does this thing come from? It's purely a metaphor. That's all it is. It gives the illusion, like we've really explained something. Oh, that's natural law. No. All you've done is you've labeled it. But you haven't explained it. What is a natural law? Well, it's a, it's, a, it's a thing that's in nature. But what in nature makes laws? I thought only people made laws. Well, it's, it's just something that scientists have discovered. Oh, you mean the scientists made the law? Yeah. Well, no, you don't. If I have gravity here, what scientist made the gravity? No, no scientist made that law. Newton didn't make it. He just got hit in the head with an apple. So... The scientists see it, but they didn't make it. So, excuse me, I'm back to my primary question. What is natural law? And that's something that you can be raised in the classroom very safely. Just keep asking the question. Where is natural law? We yak-yak every week in lectures about natural law. I'm still confused. Define for me what you mean by natural law. Well, it's something that's constant. So finally, what you'll press, if you finally push hard enough and ask 23 and a half times, finally what comes out is that by natural law, we mean something that is a constant. But here's the problem. The moment somebody responds that natural law is a constant, they're thrown back to our old nemesis, finite human knowledge. Right? How do you know it's a constant unless you observe it's a constant? But the problem is, you're limited in the sphere over which you can do the observation. So really, you haven't got a universal, do you? Really, all you can say, your most powerful assertion isn't anything like natural law. Your powerful assertion is, in the area where we have observed, it appears that it's constant. Oh, 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 okay. Now we're not talking about some lawmaker that made this thing. We're talking about 
a more conservative, a more humble approach, that what we're really talking about is a diary of observations. Okay, I'll buy that. This is a diary of observations. And I can buy that as a Bible-believing Christian. What I have trouble buying into is this idea that we have something called natural law that just sits there. Because, number one, I know that no matter how brilliant the person may be, they may have an IQ 40 times mine, but they still are finite by this diagram. So I don't care how smart they are, they're not infinitely smart. And if they're not infinitely smart and they do not have an infinitely long life, then they have not an infinite data set and they are not omniscient and therefore cannot know a universal constant when they see one. They only have a diary of observations that this appears to be constant over the domain of the observation. Now, any Bible-believing Christian can buy that. But lo and behold, once we confess to the fact that we are back to a diary of observations, aren't we back to another idea that we just talked about? Aren't we back to God as a covenant-keeping God? Isn't our diary of observations in reality a documentation of his faithfulness? So far from being a natural law, what we really have is an empirical verification that he kept his promise. But see, the pagan mind doesn't want to have, get God involved. I mean, after all, he's unconstitutional. We can't get him involved in the picture. So we have to substitute another source for our universals, and we do it with slick talk. And this is this natural law idea is a slick talk. A lot of people like to use it. I've used it. And I have to be careful about using it, because it's part of the vocabulary of our time, and we all find out using it. But we have to understand when we use it what we're using it for. Let's not invest it with some sort of magic. There's no such thing as natural law just sitting there. Something's behind it. And on a pagan basis, we ask, who? Marduk? Tiamat? Fate? Chance? Where is all this coming from? I have an answer as a Bible-believing Christian. What's yours? Well, it's just there. That's not an answer. What do you mean it's just there? Do you have any basis for asserting this, other than your own personal observations and so forth. Well, we belabored that point enough. The point is that paganism wants to counterfeit, as it always does. And it's something to understand as we go through the Scripture, it doesn't make any difference whether we're in Genesis, whether we're in the New Testament, whether we're in the book of Exodus, whether it's in the book of Romans. No matter where we are in the Bible, there's a battle on to take the Bible straightforwardly or to distort it and distort the truth of God's Word. Okay, let's look a little bit now at the implications, the direct implications this has for, for, uh, for nature, for our idea, for our doctrine of nature. If it is true, and let's draw a planet Earth, if it is true that God promises there will be no flood on the Earth, so this is a no-flood earth, no global flood earth. What is implied when he made that promise? What else can we infer if he makes a no-flood earth? Well, we know very well something out there in the Chesapeake Bay, and anybody has been out in the Chesapeake Bay, if you're a fisherman or a boater, what happens every 10 or 12 hours? Tide. You get a tide effect. Where's the tide coming from? Tides because of the moon. Can the moon and extraterrestrial bodies then affect water on the earth? Yes. Suppose we had a powerful pass-by of an asteroid that passed by with its gravitational field in resonance with the earth and picked up the waters of the ocean into a supertide and smashed across the continents with it. Would we have a global flood? Sure we would. So, what then does God have to control to have a no-flood earth? He's got to control nearby astronomical bodies, all of them. So we extend the power of the promise. Because to make the promise work for the earth, 
He's got to protect the near environment of the Earth. But now, in order to control those astronomical bodies that are close by the Earth, they in turn can be influenced by astronomical bodies beyond them. Can they not? Then, what has God got to do in order to keep a no-flood Earth? He's got to control the nearby bodies, but to control the nearby bodies, he has to control the far-off bodies. And so forth. And what have we done here in this line of reasoning? What have we done? Let's look at it carefully. We have said that in order to promise anything at any point in the universe, God has to control every other point in the universe. Either he controls every point or he can control no point. It's either or. So we have here a very powerful implication for nature and for a whole idea of nature that God's words controlled astronomical bodies of unbelievable distance and force. And we come back... Let's, well, not, we won't come back to Genesis right this moment. But we... You can come back in your memory. Um, in Genesis 9... Pretend you were there with a tape recorder. You have one of these little guys that can tape. Okay? You're standing right there with Noah when God speaks those words. So you get your little tape recorder and you hear God speaking in whatever the language was that he was spoken, some maybe proto-Semitic language or something. And he speaks to Noah and he says, the earth will never, ever again be destroyed by water. I guarantee that. Click off the tape recorder. Now, what you have heard and got on that tape recorder is something that is superior to every law of physics in the universe. Think about this because, believe me, folks, this is an exercise we really as Christians need to do because every day of our lives we're walking around in a world that thinks exactly the opposite way. Every day of our lives, every news article we read, every magazine article we read, and of course this is Easter and Newsweek and U.S. World News Report and everybody else had to run convenient little stories about why Jesus didn't rise from the dead and why he couldn't have been God. And you know, In Christmas he couldn't have been born of a virgin. In Easter he couldn't rise from the dead. Uh, but we're very religiously neutral in all this now. Don't, don't get us wrong. We're being very objective. This is scholarly opinion. Of course, they, they always suppress the conservative scholars. And what they define as scholarship is liberalism. But let there be a conservative speak out, oh, we can't do that because that's religious, like the Los Angeles Times forbidding comic strips that might talk about God. After all, what obscene thing next will they think about? Um, so we have this situation where we are contaminated intellectually. And you have to take a bath. And what I am suggesting to you tonight is to take a bath intellectually. Get rid of all the dirt. And the way to think this through is cycle the implications of the Word of God imaginatively through your, through your brain. In other words, through the medium of imagining a tape recording and hearing God's words in Genesis 9 actually being spoken and looking up at the stars and looking at the moon and think to yourself as you hear the tape recording and you look into the sky and you see what's going on, the lunar eclipse a few, a few nights ago. And you see this. You look out into the expanse of the universe and you hear God's word saying, this is a behavioral pattern I have imposed on the geophysical universe. It will always be so. Now, the, what that does for you, it puts above any concept of natural law the word of God. And here's how we can restore the Word of God to its primacy. What we're used to doing is have some law of physics. You know, F equals MA. Something like this. And then we say, well, there's molecules and F equals MA, and we, we develop all these explanations, and then we start talking about human behavior in terms of biochemical laws, and etc., etc. So we derive everything from this natural law. And then we wonder why we have trouble believing God. Well, the reason we have trouble believing God is because we've washed Him out at the very starting point. 
What we need to do is take a bath and say, wait a minute, the constraints of solving that equation, the bounds in that equation are controlled by the Word of God, a personal Word from Him. That is superior to the equations. There's a passage in the New Testament to dramatize this. Turn to the book of Colossians. In Colossians chapter 1, verse 16 and 17. I mentioned this several weeks ago. Talking about Jesus Christ, clearly showing His deity. And by the way, the one reason why I think Paul did this particular writing of this particular verse, these two verses, is because the Colossians apparently were coming under the influence of a pagan concept of called Gnosticism, and that was very close to this continuity of being we've talked about, where they smear the differences out between God and man. And what he's trying to do here is, look, don't misinterpret Jesus. Jesus is not just a superman. Jesus is God. Because in verse 16 he says, My claim is that by Jesus Christ all things were created, both in the heavens and on earth. You see how he does that? He could have just said, For by him all things were created. And a sloppy reader would say, Oh, yeah, sure, the animals and the cats and the dogs. But by stopping the sentence right there, putting a comma in, and saying, In the heavens and the earth, he said, Wait a minute. The heavens were worshipped as gods and goddesses. When you see an artwork of Pharaoh, what do you always see right here on his brow? First of all, you usually see serpents, the python. But then in the center of his, his emblem, it's the solar disk. Solar disk right here. Remember Yule Brunner in Ten Commandments? He probably made a better Pharaoh than the Pharaohs made. For by Him all things were created in the heavens and on earth, visible and invisible. So even in the spiritual realm, Jesus Christ created angels. So that cuts all the angels down. By saying in the heaven, that cuts all the suns and the moons and the stars down to size. See how He makes Jesus bigger at every clause? By Him, by Jesus Christ, all things are created in the heavens, on the earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all have been created by Him and, to add further insult to injury, for Him, not for themselves. And He is before all things, and in Him, and here's the key verse, in Him all things hold together. The Word of God is what holds the universe together. What we describe as equations, all these are mere diaries. It's just somebody kept a diary and described it. Think of math as, as an English like English or French or Russian. Math is always a language. Do you realize that when we write something like F equals MA up here, we're so used to this. What do you think people did 300 years ago? You know, you can read a scientific text years and years ago. They didn't have this equation. This, this symbolism that we use is only a few centuries old. But they had science then. How could they have had science before they had equations? Simple. They just described the stuff in a sentence. The force is equal to the mass times the acceleration. They didn't have any symbols for it. So don't get spooked by the some ooh, sacred thing going on when I can write something in the equation. For fun some night, I'll try to remember to bring the equation for the growth of a raindrop. It has about 35 or 40 different terms in it. And you can just see how many descriptions, just to make this little tiny raindrop grow right, you've got to describe, and it just goes on and on and on. And the funny part is, it seems to describe a raindrop except for the fact that when you plug it in a computer, it takes you some 36 hours to grow a raindrop. And it's always been a puzzle to, well, how does the real rain happen? Because it isn't supposed to happen that way. So obviously we have a force going on in rapid generation of precipitation. We still don't really understand what's, what's happening there because raindrops obviously don't take 36 hours or 24 hours to form. So 
what we want to do as Christians is see that the Word of God is prior to what we call natural law. That's the big idea behind this. A personal contract pre-exists equations. That's what we're saying with the Noahic covenant. Okay, now, while we're in the New Testament, let's go over to 2 Peter chapter 3 for that commentary on this whole period and review just verse 4 of chapter 3 a moment. Because every time we learn truth, we want to learn how it's twisted. And the twisting, according to Peter, is that if we go back to the idea of natural law, Peter says right here, here's the trap. And in verse 4, please notice, it's not talking there about the Noahic flood. In verse 4, it's talking about the second advent of Christ, the end of the world, encapsulating the millennium and the eternal state and everything else to kind of together there. But the, but the point is, look what happens when you think wrong. In verse 4, that's mockery. Notice verse 3. In the last days, mockers will come with their mockery. That's the word for this. What you hear uh, and read in U.S. News Report of Time Magazine, when they make these statements, it's mockery. Peter said that. Where is the promise of His coming? For since the fathers fell asleep, all continues just as it was from the beginning of creation. So what are they saying? They're saying, I believe in constants. Now, if you really believe in constants, you've got to root those constants on what foundation? What's the foundation underneath the constant? Imagination. It's not observation. It's just a reasonable guess. And Peter says, if you make this your authority, you're going to negate every work of God in history. Particularly, you're going to negate the second advent of Christ. Come on. What, what computer model is going to forecast the return of Jesus Christ and the disruption of the geophysical universe? It can't. I guarantee it. If you've done any programming and you know the equations, you have, your equations are no more powerful than the initialization. And so you initialize the equations and you set up the equations, you have boundary conditions for their solutions, and you move on. But the second advent of Christ was never in the initial conditions, not in the boundary conditions of your equations. You're just fooling yourself to think you're describing history. You're describing a wonderful model. It may be very pleasing. It may be a beautiful, elegant model. But that's all you've done is you've made a model. You haven't created a true description of the universe. And Peter warns against that. When you depart from saying, I made a wonderful model, to going out and making the additional assertion that this is what describes the universe, there is where you have to be stopped and challenged. All right, so... We've looked at the idea of, of the covenant, the, the constraints it puts on nature. The fact, obviously, is that God dares us to measure His faithfulness. We haven't had a global flood, not going to have a global flood. Has the seasons stopped? No, the seasons haven't stopped. They have continued. The earth has always had its seasonal shifts and so forth. Now, we have also said the implication of the covenant on page 89. There are the two implications. I put them in underline for you. Just to review, all of these promises require boundaries on the movement and changes of every astronomical body, boundaries which form the core of all astronomical observations today. And the second underlining, all mankind now lives in a new geophysical, biochemical, steady state bounded by God's verbal promises. Now, what are the spiritual lessons to be learned? The spiritual lessons are to be learned that God is trustworthy. He is covenant keeper. And when we see what we have facetiously called natural law, we are looking at a covenant keeping God. So we're going to conclude tonight by turning to page 90 and we're going to look at just question one for a moment. Because question one is a thought experiment. It's a, an exercise. If 
you're a student, you've been working in any area of geology, physics, biology, or, or anything to do with natural history in any shape, way, or form, you better have thought this through because you're going to have to think it through at some point in your life. So you might as well think about it while you have an opportunity to think about it in leisure then get shoved and pushed and crammed into a position where someday your professional credentials will be called into question if you doubt it. Let's think through. The covenant implications for nature spell out a biblical alternative to the modern methodologies for constructing natural histories. Now, I'm going to give appendices B, C, and D. Uh, this course will finish up in a couple of weeks, but we'll have four extra sessions for those interested in the scientific and technical details. And that those will be these appendices. So we're not going to talk about them right now, but continue the question one. How should one proceed who wants to reconstruct past history of geophysical systems? What do you start with? Why? How far can this biblical method be taken and what are its limits? So whatever, whether it's in biology or geology or whatever it is, you have to think through your method. What sort of method is being used? Every time you ask this question, you come up with a Second Peter 4, 3, 4 thing that you're dealing with natural law. The whole premise behind modern science as it tries to reconstruct the past is that observations on a database here where we can control it with direct observations are valid back here. And we extrapolate that. We say natural law is natural law and it has to go on. But how do we know, we know back here that things were as they appear now? I'll give you a practical illustration of this. When I get into Appendix C, uh, yes, Appendix C, we're going to take one night's look at some physics. And the physics of, of chronology, chronometry and so forth. And one of the interesting things, you will, I will show you a slide. It was derived from work done at Oak Ridge by a man who was subsequently lost his, his uh, fellowship at Oak Ridge because he did this. But he made the observation that there appears to be evidence in the rocks of the earth that the radioactive decay constant has changed. And it's a very stunning observation. His observation basically is you can go into granite matrix, rock, and you can see particles that have a half-life of three and a half minutes with a burn pattern. And the problem with that is that if they only lasted three and a half minutes, when did they do that? Well, because in the existing model, the Earth was molten. And so these particles, you know, would have the, the, these particular isotopes would have been floating in this molten array and surely would have decayed before the rock crystallized as hard and granite. But if they disintegrated before the granite matrix formed, it wouldn't have left a burn mark. So obviously, it must have radioactively decayed after the granite hardened up. But if that's the case, then how did it get into the granite matrix? And so forth. Very interesting puzzle. This is brought up at the Louisiana case and this before the federal court over that time. And those are instances where we have observed radioactive decay, a decay rate over this period of time. Great! We have great observations. We connect all the dotted lines. We have curves of best fit. No problem. Nobody's arguing that. What we're arguing is whether the decay constants you derive from data here is valid back here. That's the debate. And there's no way around it other than speculation. Let's go back to this chart again. On the right, this is the timeline. This is the area of direct observation of man. We can extend our direct observations somewhat with microscopes. We can extend it with telescopes. We can have high-speed filming that takes smaller and smaller segments of time at Aberdeen down to billionth of a second to photograph what happens when a bullet comes out of a gun and it starts to turn. You can measure little torque rates and so on with ultra-high-speed photography. But notice it's clipped on the right side of this diagram. 
See, you can go down, you can go up, you can go left, but you can't go right. Why can't you? Because there's no direct observations there. Well, says a student who was here three weeks ago, my teacher said, well, of course we can go right because we can look off into space and see light and events that took billions of years to go because of the speed of light. Problem with that is that do we know that the speed of light has always remained the same? Do we know that the speed of light is the same at all points in the universe? Do we know that? Has that been checked? Or are we just guessing that the speed of light is a universal? Oh, well, obviously we haven't checked. Well, then if you haven't checked, don't call it a universal. And don't blame me if I doubt it. You see, what the Bible does, the Bible separates what we call hard science. And by hard science, we're talking about science where you can reproduce something. It separates hard science from speculative science. And we have an awful lot today of speculative science mixed in under the great slogan of science. And science has done wonderful things. Science is part of the dominion covenant that God gave Adam. The problem is, where they can say, science has helped us in medicine. Scientists have these great observations and we've benefited from science. Of course we have. Well, then, therefore, what is your problem when scientists say? Because when scientists say speculation, they have ceased to be scientists and turn into philosophers. The problem with them is you can't get them to admit that they've changed their caps. They want to talk science in one breath and talk philosophy in another and still label the whole thing as science. And that's what the debate here is. So, what we want to remember from Noah's situation in the covenant is what is the supreme standard? It is the Word of God. Why is it the supreme standard? Because God's supreme. It's a very simple idea. Natural law is a substitute for the Word of God and His faithfulness. Next week, we're going to deal with the implications of the covenant for man. It'll take us next week and the week after that to deal with that because that's going to take a little long to deal with because God has to refurbish the divine institutions that we learned about in creation. Uh, if you'll read through that segment that we passed out tonight, uh, particularly if you will review in chapter th 3, if you'll review chapter 3 of the notes where I go through the design of man, the divine institutions, and read those or just reread them so when you come to the section to read for next time you'll notice that on page 93 I start in all over again with the divine institutions because they're starting to change a bit this side of the flood Father we thank you for our time tonight we thank thee for your faithfulness and we ask that you would help us see clearly your faithfulness over against the cheap shoddy, speculative substitutes that so fill the culture of our time. For we ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Um, throw around. We'll play with it for a few minutes. But did I miss anything um, that you might want to have covered? during our deal here up to the point where we are. <laughs> well, I must have either put everyone to sleep or I covered everything. Okay. All right. Anybody can think of anything we'll, we'll cut out for next week. Okay.